Thank you. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. If you have a Bible, if you have a device where you can access a Bible, we'll turn to Romans chapter 8. So Pastor Tim has been preaching through identity, and he will be completing that series or that, that sermon next week. I know some of you were anticipating that based on what was preached last week. He is with his wife and daughter, being one of the several parents that we prayed for as far as taking his daughter back to school. And so we'll hear from him next week. But this week, we're going to look at a passage that actually Ben Richard just read for us and our hymns really kind of pointed us towards. It's a passage that, uh, for some, is perhaps maybe the favorite passage in the Bible, their favorite passage in the Bible. Uh, here at Grace Church, I have overseen the college and career group for the better part of 10 or 11 years now. And um, if you have been part of that group or you are currently part of that group, um, what you're going to hear from me may sound vaguely familiar because I've made it a point in those 10 years to go over this passage of Scripture on several occasions. And if God would have me here, and God would have me continuing to share the Word with you, I don't intend on going anywhere, but um, if God would have me do this, you'll probably hear this again. And the reason is, it's not because, oh, I like this one, let's hear it again, as much as this is something that, as believers, we'll just need to hear time and time and time again. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn born among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. As I said before, this is a favorite passage to many. And sometimes favorite passages become sentimental passages. Where, you know, what this passage means sometimes can be actually less important than what this passage means to me. So maybe you have a passage of scripture where when you hear it, you think of a scenario, you think of the situation, or, or perhaps even when you open the Bible, you have a note by that verse, and you remember why you wrote that note and what it meant, and this could be one of those passages. The Bible is living and active, right? It pierces into our hearts and shows us who we are. And so we as fallen humans need to hear truth again and again. It's not just a one-time thing. And as we look at this passage, and maybe for some, as we look at it perhaps through the lens of sentimentality, which isn't a bad thing, we need to make sure that we get it right. So we're going to look at this passage, one that's familiar to many, and I'm going to ask four questions that's going to lead us through verses 28 through 30. And I'm going to give you those questions ahead of time, okay? So here's four questions that we're going to ask about this passage, okay, based upon what we read. First of all, how many things does God work together for good? That's question number one. 
right? Question number two. If God works all things together for good, does that mean that all things are good? Like, all are good by themselves. Okay? That's question number two. God works all things together for good. Does that mean that all things are good by themselves? Question number three that we're going to get to. If you're writing down furiously, don't worry. I'll come back because we're going to work through this. Because okay? I see some of you scurrying. So, oh, so. It's okay. I appreciate that. Is this promise, God works all things together for good, a promise for all people? Question number three. Is this promise a promise for all people? And then question number four. How does the Bible define good? Okay? How does the Bible define good? So before we go any further, let's ask God for wisdom. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us as we look into his word. We want it to be that, not mine, or anything that could confuse from it. Okay? Let's pray. God, you are so good, and we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for passages of scripture that often can flow off the tongue, some that when we meditate upon them, we actually have situations in life where you have used those passages to help guide and strengthen and encourage. And so, God, as we look at Romans 8, it's a wonderful chapter of your, of your word, and this passage in particular, verses 28 through 30, God, we come to your word wanting to see it for what it is, your word. May our hearts submit. May the Holy Spirit have freedom within our hearts, within our minds. May we think clearly. Lord, keep us from distraction. So that you might get the most glory in these next few minutes. That's what we want. So that you would have the glory. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so question number one. How many things does God work together for good? Okay, that's question number one. Now, we look at verse 28. By the way, all of the answers to these questions we're going to get from the passage. Okay? So I'll be able to say, hey, look, see it for yourself. It's a big deal. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How many things does God work together, or God cause to work together for good? And there's a really important word in there. It's the word all. All things. Everything that has happened, everything that's happening now, and will happen, God causes all things to work together for good. Now, some see this all things limited in its scope, and they see it based on verse 18. Okay, so look back just a few verses. Verse 18. Where Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, this makes sense. 
to see all things working together for good, to see it in the context of verse 18. I mean, it's right there. Not to mention the fact that it's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, in fact, it makes perfect sense for God to take good things and bring good out of them. I mean, if we're thinking all things work together for good, God takes these good things and he works out good. Well, that makes sense. And so why would this be stated if it weren't in reference to something that wasn't necessarily, like, good things, like these present sufferings. So it makes sense that Paul's point is that even the sufferings that a believer experiences can be used by God and bring about good. Okay. I think that's fair. I don't think it has to be restricted because, I mean, when you read a phrase like all things, and I don't mean to be wordy here, but stick with me, is there anything that's outside of all things? The answer is, no, there is nothing that is outside of all things. With me? Okay? So all things is all things, all circumstances. I think it's fair to read the passage in that way. I don't think it's hyperbole. I don't think it's exaggeration for the effect. I think what Paul is saying is that all things God causes to work together for good. Now, God causes, in your translation, may be uh, omitted in different translations. For example, if you're using a King James Version, you might read, all things work together for good. Some manuscripts include God causes, or they make the, 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 the statement very clear that it is God is the one that's doing this. And I think this is a really important point to make because we have to see God's sovereignty in all of this. That God is in control. He is over every circumstance, over every situation. He is the causer. So all things work together for good is not just by chance or happenstance. Rather, God is the one who is working the all things together for good. Okay, so you've heard that phrase, I ah, will just let the chips fall where they may. Heard that before? This is not that. Just kind of whatever happens, happens. No, God is causing, God causes all things to work together for good. God is in complete and perfect control. He is power, powerful and sovereign and over all things. Now, it's important to start here at this point because we are confronted with the potential for unbelief. Why? Because we can think of things that can be an exception to this. Because we think of life. All things, God causes all things to work together for good. And perhaps you're sitting there and scenarios come to mind. Really? That? I don't know if you know my all things. So we're confronted with the potential for unbelief right from the get-go. And that's why we're settling here just making this point. Just answering this question. The question of how many things does God work together for good? It's important that we answer it the way the Bible answers it. Now, if you look at just a few verses later, in verses 35 and 36, chapter 8, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That sounds good. 
Verse 36, will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Just a few verses later, he writes that. So we could even perhaps have the context create some level of dissonance or tension. Some of you might be thinking, ah, I know where he's going. It's okay. There's no problem for me accepting this. I get it. I know this passage. Heard this before. Got it. But I want to make two comments. First of all, you might be thinking that way now. But I'm guessing that there have been times where you haven't. Or there may be times coming where you don't. Times in the future or if we start really probing in your deepest doubts, we might discover a hint of unbelief where you're really not certain that God is working that thing for good. And I want you to also take into consideration here that even though you might not have this great tension, might not have any tension at all. Yes, all things are all things. Get it. There's probably people in this room that do. There's others maybe friends, maybe family, spiritual family, that struggle with this. Even to where you telling them this verse in the situation might actually be salt in a wound. Maybe that's happened to you. You're going through that situation, and that dear brother and sister says, you know, all things work together for good. And it's not that balm in Gilead that you perhaps were hoping for. Doesn't make it any less true. It does seem contradictory sometimes. This promise and a situation that you might be going through or have gone through. All things are all things. That's what Romans 8, 28 means. I know there's more to that, but again, we have to stop and make a point because we have to ask ourselves if we really, in fact, believe this. So, do you? Do you really believe this? Because there's much at risk if there are things outside of the all things that God isn't able to work for good. There's much at risk. So for right now, let's not ignore or set aside that tension that you might be having. Let's lean into that tension and get to our second question. Because our second question is really important in light of the first question. First question was, what? It was, how many things does God work together for good? Our second question if God causes all things to work together for good, does that mean that all things are good by themselves? Does that mean all things are good? And the answer is no. No. Look back at verse 18. We just did, right? These present sufferings. Paul wasn't talking about them as something that was good. In fact, he said that the glory to follow is something that they should be viewed in light of. That there's a glory to follow that's going to far outmeasure the present sufferings. And then everything that you just read in verses 35 and 36, and even in verses 38 and 39, all the things that cannot separate us from the love of God are to be seen as what they are. You see, God wants you to be a realist. He wants you to look at things in a real way. What do I mean by that? 
We see in Romans 8 creation and mankind groaning under the weight of the curse. A curse that will be done away with. Done away with in the new heaven and the new earth. And we look at situations throughout Scripture, even, you know, we don't have time, but looking at the situation of Joseph being sold into captivity. You may be familiar with this passage at the very end of the book of Genesis where his brothers are thinking, uh-oh, now that our father is dead, Joseph's going to get back at us for selling him into slavery, right? He's going to do all this. And what did Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good for the saving of many lives. That was, in fact, evil, him being sold into slavery. That was, in fact, evil, him being imprisoned. That was, in fact, evil, his brothers lying to their father about what happened to him. That was evil. That was wrong. That wasn't somehow good in disguise. And the reason why I say God wants us to look at life in a realistic way, or he wants us to be real, is that there are times where, as Christians, we perhaps feel this obligation or responsibility to somehow put on these rose-colored glasses that the evil that we see or the evil we experience is really good, but it's in disguise. Like, we, if you just work hard enough, you'll be able to see that it's not really evil, it's actually good. Um, for my birthday, uh, my, my wife and my family, they got me uh, actually, it, was, it wasn't for my birthday. It was, it was, it was for uh, Father's Day. They got me a new set of colorblind corrective lenses. I got a pair from my college and career group several years ago, um, but my, my, my wife and my kids got me a new set. So I'm colorblind, and I you know, just don't see colors right. I see them, but I don't see them right. And so what they did was they, we went online and actually took this test on what colors I see right and what colors I don't see right. And, and so I got this new set of glasses. And when you put the glasses on, everything is pink at first. And people who have put on these glasses are like, oh, my word, it's all pink. Well, there's something weird that happens in my brain because when I put them on, they look pink, but then things shift. And then I'm seeing greens and reds, and they just pop out. And it's weird, but it's really cool. But other people who put these glasses on, all they see is pink. And it's like, the sky is pink. Everything is pink. Why is that? I don't know, but it works for me, so it's great. <laughs> you know, you put these glasses on and everything looks pink. That's weird. In some ways, knowing what we know about God, knowing what we know about his plan, in some ways, we can feel a weight of responsibility that by putting on our spiritual glasses, we'll be able to see that the difficulty or the hardship that we're currently in really isn't hardship or difficulty at all. Like these rose-colored glasses. And if we don't see it, it's as if God is kind of there with his arms crossed, kind of shaking his head like, oh, you, you of little faith. And that is not what this passage is saying. You cannot take the all things God causes to work together for good and equate it with all things are good. All things are not good. You shouldn't feel guilty when you look around the world and you see things, you say, this really isn't the way it should be. 
Because it isn't. We live in a fallen world, and we see the effects of the fall. And we should be careful, if I can make just this, this side point here. I think we should be careful, especially those of us who have the opportunity to come alongside another believer. Where, where somehow where we're coming alongside of them and trying to experience, uh, trying to, to help them and encourage them and, and perhaps too quickly usher them into the all things work together for good. And somehow overlooking or appreciating the pain that they have in that moment. Maybe let's illustrate it this way. How many of you like cinnamon? Like cinnamon? Okay, I like cinnamon. Growing up, put cinnamon in my applesauce. It was really good. Okay. When I was a kid, I discovered that cinnamon comes in sticks. You know, my, my mom had this lazy Susan. We had all our spices in there. And I discovered that there was a jar and there were cinnamon sticks in there. And I like cinnamon. So I ate a cinnamon stick. Okay? Any of you eaten a cinnamon stick before? It's like your mouth is on fire. This is awful. This is, you know, wait, I like cinnamon. It's good. Apple cinnamon Cheerios, right? Cinnamon Toast Crunch, those awful cereals that are just so good. I love cinnamon. But then you eat a cinnamon stick and it's awful. Right? You know, Mary Poppins didn't say a spoonful of cinnamon helps the medicine go down. She said a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. If your first experience with cinnamon is eating a cinnamon stick, you might be predisposed to not liking cinnamon. You might actually have a pretty violent response to it. No, I don't like that. You probably don't think of it like your cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning. Right? That's good. And right now, right now there may be some who, frankly, the all things that they're working through is more like a cinnamon stick than it is the mixture with other ingredients. Maybe there hasn't been the time to where wisdom, fellowship, maturity, Holy Spirit comfort, Time, all get mixed together with that. Right now, perhaps the feeling is just pain. And to them, and maybe even to you, even the hymns that we sang this morning seem like a cruel joke. Rejoice in the Lord, he makes no mistake. Really? No, he doesn't. But that also doesn't mean that the good that God is working comes exclusively, exclusively from good things. God is so big and he's so powerful and he's so good and he's so loving that he can take any ingredient and bring about good. Even the worst situation. So no, not all things, I'm sorry, no, all things are not good. God wants you to see things as they are, to be real. So our first question, how many things does God cause to work together for good? All. Does that mean, second question, that all things are good? No. Which leads us to our third question. Is this promise, this promise that God causes all things to work together for good, a promise for all people? Well, again, the passage answers that question. Let's look there in Romans 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is a promise given to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in the Greek language, verse 28 actually makes this point clearer by the word order. It would read something like, to those who love God, 
all things work together for good. But it's a little clunky because the clause at the end of the verse, to those who are the called, also modifies to those who love God. So the wording that you see is probably an easier way of reading it. But you see, though, at the beginning, this phrase, we know. And that word we is really important, especially in the context of the passage. The we are those who are in Christ. Those are Christians. Christians, those who, in verses in chapter 3 and verse 23 of Romans, who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christians who, in chapter 6 and verse 23, know that the wages of their sin is death, but yet the gift of God is eternal life. Christians who acknowledge that, according to chapter 5 and verse 8, while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. Christians who, later in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that publicly confess Jesus Christ as Lord and acknowledge and believe and proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's important that the reader, as they're reading this passage, doesn't simply insert himself or herself into context that may or may not include them. A Christian can be assured that all things really are going to be used by God to bring about good. If you're saved, you've made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, this is a promise for you. And the wording at the end of the verse speaks to the intentionality of what God does. Those who are the called according to his purpose. So if you're saved, God loves you so much that he takes all of his sovereignty, all of his love, all of who he is, and he pours it into all of the all things and he brings about good. God extends this promise to a specific people for a reason. You might be thinking, well, wait a second. That all things, that word all was there describing the all situations. But we don't see the all here in this promise. For those who are the called, those who are loving God. So are we saying that this promise doesn't extend to some people? And the answer is, that's true. Which necessarily leads us to the fourth question. Naturally dovetails right to the fourth question, and the fourth question is, how does the Bible define good? How does the Bible define good. Well, again, we look at the passage to see. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. You see, this question, how does the Bible define good, really gets to the heart of what this verse means, and how we should apply it, and how we should use it in the context even of our relationship with others. If good, and let's just start right here. If good, the word good, is something that you are allowed to define for yourself. If good is something that God doesn't define, but rather you define. You will misunderstand this cherished passage of scripture. 
If you are the judge, if you are the jury, if you're the one that becomes the definer of good, you will miss the meaning of this passage. God gets to define good. How you use it. How we read it. I mean, it makes sense. The days of creation, after each day, and what he created was good, right? Starting with creation. In the book of James, we read that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So if he gives us everything that's good, it stands to reason he knows what good really is like. And us, in our limitations as human beings, we might have a sense of what is good, but we have to make sure that we're taking that sense and comparing it to what God says is good. Now this is so important that we start off by making sure we are defining things the way God defines them. It's one thing to say, oh, I believe it says this. And it's another thing for God to say, mm, not so much. We want to be on God's side when he says something's good. That's what we want to understand it to be. Okay? And what does he say is good? Well, we're not saying every situation is good. We're not saying the bad that happens in life is really good in disguise. Come on, put your secret spiritual glasses on. You'll see it if you look hard enough. Not saying that. What we're saying, or what, more importantly, what Scripture is saying in verse 29 is that for those whom he foreknew, you see that word for at the beginning? That means it's connected with the previous verse. It's showing a relationship there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge, predestination. God has a plan here. This isn't accidental. God just doesn't take random events and somehow whip up a recipe from them. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The Christian has been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. This is what good means. Good means becoming like Jesus Christ. That's what good means according to Romans 8 verses 28 through 30. Becoming like Jesus Christ. For the Christian, everything that God allows to happen, all of the ingredients that make up the recipe that is your life, God is causing all of those things to work together to bring you to the outcome of becoming like Jesus. That is good. Did you get your way this morning? I didn't. Are things going okay? Maybe, maybe not. If you are a Christian, all of those circumstances are being used by God to bring about an outcome that is you looking more like Jesus Christ. Being conformed from your spiritually deformed position. That's what sin does. It deforms. We need to be conformed to Christ's image. 
even as we are already in Christ for the Christian. In verse 29, it says becoming like Jesus means being part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters. Becoming like Jesus, verse 30, means being found legally righteous in the eyes of God. I'm justified. And the creme de la creme, glorified. Notice how at the end of that word glorified, it has ED, as if it's something like in the past tense. It's not past tense, but it's as good as done in God's eyes. So the outcome, us in heaven, is as good as done in God's eyes. We agree that's good. But we don't live there right now. I mean, if Jesus comes back in the next few moments, we will. But right now we're not. And that's where we live. And it's kind of hard to sometimes have our brains like put those two things in agreement. Yes, I know. I know those things are really important spiritually, but I'm living right now. And this is going on. And the circumstance happened. I know. I get all that. Kind of like, what about the right now, God? I mean, does he care about you know, the, the, the period of time between like now and our glorification? And the answer is yes. And we see that even in the word good. Because in the word good, that word good actually points to one's advantage or benefit. In other words, all things work out for the benefit of those who love God. But this benefit is not just for heaven. This benefit is also for now. So Christian, do you really believe that becoming like Jesus is worth the all things you're going through? Or that you will go through? That becoming like Jesus is the best definition of good. There's lots of definitions of good. Mitchell's ice cream is good. But it is not the definition of what the Bible says is good. And this ongoing recalibration of what is good. Good is becoming like Jesus. And the all things that I like, the all things that I don't like, it's working in me as a Christian to make me more like Jesus. And he's the one that's overseeing all of that. He's not trying to convince me that it's good in disguise. He's saying the outcome is good because you're going to be like Christ. Now, that third question, is this promise for all people? And we said, no, this promise is for those in Christ. This is why answering that question accurately is so important. Because frankly, the unbelieving world, what interest do they have in a person who lived 2,000 years ago, who was a good teacher, who lived in Israel, and religious people tend to admire him? What is the relevance of the all things, their all things, what is the relevance of Jesus and that? I mean, good in that circumstances, stop the bad. Comfort, cleanness, prosperity, my best life. Why should I care if fill in the blank makes me look like Jesus? I mean, seriously, fill in the blank. The landlord who squeezes you out of your security deposit. The chronic pain, the chronic pain your job is. 
child that goes off the deep end, the racism you experience, the sexism that you may experience, the disabilities, the friends that fail you, your own failures, your own regrets about who you've torn apart with things you've said or the bridges you've burnt. For the Christian, all these things and so much more are the ingredients to the good that is becoming like Jesus Christ. And we don't get that living in the moment, but we trust it. And in fact, we don't just trust that we are assured of it. We know that God is causing all of these things to work together for good. The unbeliever, on the other hand, doesn't. Christian, please grow in your love and understanding for just how dire this situation is. For those who we pray that would trust Christ, please understand. I want us to track out the implications of what we're just talking about. So those who are unbelieving experience the difficulties of this present world just like we do, right? Same stuff. Everything I just mentioned. What's the point of the difficulty from an eternal standpoint? I mean, maybe it'll make them stronger. Maybe they'll be able to overcome difficulties. Maybe they, they can look back at their life and they can see different achievements that came through that. And at the end of the time, the end of their time here, they can, they can have their chin up, they can be proud, and, and they made it through it. But then they breathe their last, and they're confronted with an eternity without Jesus Christ. What's the point? It's kind of like, you know, you've maybe heard that phrase, polishing the doorknobs on a sinking Titanic. The ship's going down. The doorknobs and the brass looks good. And maybe there's some limited human achievement that can be gleaned from working our way through difficulties without Christ. But in the end, the good is not Christ-likeness. This is dire. And when they ask, what's the point? It's not the same point as yours. It can be. And it should be, and I would even go so far as to say God would want it to be that way. Puritan Thomas Watson said something to that effect, that for the unbeliever, the all things are to get them to the point where they can no longer exist. They reach the end of the rope, as it were, and then they're forced to turn to God. Isn't it interesting that sometimes even the hardest critic of Christianity, the hard-nosed agnostic or atheist, when bad things, when tragic things happen in society, some of the first questions that get asked are, why did God allow for this? Where was God in this? Why is it that they go to him and give him the blame? When in fact, perhaps maybe their attention to God is the point. This passage that we've discussed today is not so much theoretical as it is practical. My tire goes flat. And I find out, not only is that tire flat, the other three tires need change. I have new tires on my car. All things to work together for good. New tires. Cost of the tires, eh, not so much good. Right? We live there. 
We live in some of the mundane all things. We live in some of the grievous all things. This isn't just a theoretical discussion to be had on a Sunday morning. This is very practical. But I would say the primary issue here isn't an issue of the intellect. It's really an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the will. An issue of will I submit my definition of good to God's definition of good. And at the end of the day, I really do think this is what will distinguish the believer from the non-believer. That the unbeliever will hold on to something different than Christ's likeness as good and will live their life accordingly. That's not good. Being like Jesus? There's so much other so many other things that are good. I'd rather live for that. I'd rather do that. This is not an acceptable explanation for what's going on. Whereas the believer says, all of these things and then some, if this makes me like Jesus, it may not be pleasant, but this is good. This is good. Good is fundamentally spiritual, that we become conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We become like him. Good is not my happiness, not my fulfillment, not my pleasure, not my success. Those things are fine. But, they are, but all things are not working together for good. All things are working together so that I may become like Jesus. Put differently, the issue, again, is understanding things correctly. For Christians, I hope, maybe this is just a reminder, maybe literally every answer to the question, yeah, I knew that. But boy, is it good to hear it. And we'll probably need to hear it again and again and again. For some, you know, in Christ, perhaps it's been a point of conviction that, frankly, practically, the way I live my life as far as good doesn't look that much different than the unbelieving world. And I find that out when I don't get my way. That's good, my way. When, in fact, God may be working in you and recalibrating that understanding of good. Before perhaps those who are here who don't know Christ, where maybe this is your first time looking at a Bible, hearing the word, hearing this passage, I want you to do something, if you would. There's probably someone here that invited you, or maybe someone here that you know that believes all of this spiritual stuff, all the stuff we've been talking about. And you've seen them go through something and saw them not become bitter, but maybe praise God. Maybe their disposition. You, you look at them and say, there's no way I would have handled it that way. Why did they handle that that way? Ask them about that. Why is it that way? Maybe they're not perfect. I know they're not perfect. But how is it that they could handle what it is they went through in that way? In them, you actually have a real-time example of what we've been trying to say today. Their example, their friendship with you might be a better way of explaining it, maybe even better than how I explained it today. Seeing it play out in their lives. We don't bat a thousand as Christians, but there will be a difference when we're challenged with what God says is good and how we come out on the other side. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we are limited in what we can see, we're limited in what we know. 
And we can be easily swayed by the moments that we live in. We can be swayed perhaps not even by our difficulties, but perhaps by the successes of others who we think may not be as deserving as we are. And how is it that all things seem to be working together for their good, but not ours? God, we live in 24 hours. We know truth. We're reminded of truth. So Lord, as we've been reminded for many of us, May we rehearse this truth. May we teach this truth to ourselves. God, help us to be patient with those who are doing just that, but perhaps aren't where we think they ought to be. Maybe they still are eating that cinnamon stick where pain is all they can see and frustration with your plan because of where they're at is where we've been called to come alongside of. May we be lovers, patient with all men. And God, I pray for those here who frankly approach life with a definition of good that is just worldly. When we have the good, the toys, success, life's good. When we don't have it, life's bad. Be patient with us, Lord. Thank you for your long suffering and loving kindness as we grow. And Lord, if there are any here that don't know Christ, that they're trying to get good out of a fallen world and keep wondering why it falls short or falls flat or it satisfies but only for a short time, then, Lord, perhaps today would their eyes be opened to seeing what it is that their real purpose is to become like Jesus Christ, to be a brother and sister of Christ, to be justified, having their sins debt paid for, having your wrath taken from them, having their guilt removed, being sanctified, even having their disposition changed to where they desire to please and live for you, something they've never done before, never thought about in a meaningful way before. Lord, bring those souls to Christ. God, may your son come quickly. We look forward to being with you, and we thank you that we are one day closer. But in the meantime, may we submit daily, regularly, and in doing so, really bring you the most glory. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.